Make It Right, the manufacturing podcast. Do you recall those early days of COVID-19 in North America when there was this mad scramble for household items and the stockpiling of non-perishable food items? With supplies coming to our shores from all over the world, there was this real fear of lack that cleaned off store shelves. There were just some things that we didn't make here anymore and adjustments needed to be made really quickly. COVID-19 has taught us a lot and our guest has proved that offshoring is not the answer. Welcome to the Make It Right podcast. I'm Janet Eastman, and this week on the show, I'm really pleased to have Harry Moser, the founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative at the Association for Manufacturing Excellence as our guest. Harry, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be, be here. Uh, Great. Reshoring Initiative is not a part of the AMA. We, we work, we cooperate with them. Oh, perfect. Okay, thanks yeah, for clarifying. Just, just for clarification. Yeah. That's good. Thank you very yeah. much. I had misunderstood that. Harry, I'd like to introduce you to my colleague, Kevin Snook. He is a manufacturing leadership advisor. He's based in Thailand, and he joins us today, too. Hi, Kevin. Yeah, lovely to see you, Harry and Janet. <laughs> so, Harry, I want to go right to it. what has COVID-19 shown us about the impact of offshoring in North America and the manufacturing industry? Yeah, let me take the longer-term trend and then come down to the present. Okay. So longer term trend, um, huge am amounts of increase in imports to the United States. Trade deficit grew to 800 billion per year uh, over a 40, 50 year, old year time period. And then around 2010, things started to get a little better. Reshoring, uh, re US companies bring things back. FDI foreign companies bring work to the United States, got going. And so in the year 2010, about 6,000 jobs were announced to come back. And in the year 2017, about 190,000 were announced to come back. So quite, quite an improvement, more than 30 times. Uh, driven in 2017 by Trump's uh, tax cuts, regulatory cuts. And then it fell off in 2018, 2019, primarily because of Trump's trade war. That the companies said, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the rules are going to be a month from now. We'll just wait and see what happens. So we had this, this surge up, fall off, start, starting to pick up in 2020 and significantly in 2020 because of COVID. So significant amounts of PPE, the medical things have mm -hmm. come back, uh, things that were traditionally made in China or elsewhere, uh, but also other products that companies have said, I, uh, I, I can't afford to be dependent on that. And so the, um, it lo looks like 2020 will be up substantially from 2019. And, and the companies are starting to understand that it's too risky to have these hundreds of supply chains scattered all over the world and be so dependent and so at risk of all kinds of things that, that can happen. Uh, but it was driven by COVID. COVID, you know, the, recent, the last year or two, driven by people seeing on the television, hour after hour, the shortages and understanding that we are not self-sufficient. Right. So how hard is it for us to, us being North America, to bring all that back here or to bring some of it back here? How hard is that? It's, I'd say, most difficult for the U.S., moderately difficult for Canada, and rel relatively easy for Mexico. Uh, reason being that the the driving force of offshoring is price. Uh, 
the fact that companies can buy things in, let's say, Europe for 20% less than the U.S. and China for 30 or 40% less than the U.S. And that's what drives them. And that's significantly because wage rates are so much higher in the, in the U.S. and Canada. Mexico is about like China. So, so as long as that wage rate difference stays so high, unless we can overcome it by uh, tax differences, by better skilled workforce, by more automation, by uh, maybe adding a value-added tax or a border adjustment tax or something like other countries have, unless we do something to offset that manufacturing cost differential, it'll, it is hard to bring most of it back, but it's possible to bring, it's, and we demonstrate consistently that it's very possible, very feasible to bring back 20 or 30% of it. Okay, so given what you just said there, how do we get, how does the U.S. get reshoring right then? Yeah, the, the, the real key, the, the long-term key is macro. The long-term key is to get the dollar down by 20 or 30%. Uh, to have a, a skilled workforce, the equivalent of Germany or Switzerland, where 60% of the high school students go into apprentice programs, where, where really smart high school students become tool makers and welders and precision machinists and chemical technicians and things like that. Kids here that would obviously go on to university. And, and in many countries, a much higher percentage of the university students study engineering than in the U.S. Here, everybody and I, I imagine Canada is the same. Everybody wants to study art and music and philosophy and anthropology and all this stuff, and then and then go out and find a job working at Starbucks somewhere. <laughs> you know? And and so uh, so anyway, currency, uh, skilled workforce, uh, taxes, uh, automation. Automation is absolutely key. Um, you, you mentioned AMA lean. There, there's definitely a, a very strong role for for lean. For, uh, Jim Womack, who's my neighbor up in Maine, talks about lean shoring, talks about bringing the work back, not into the old factory with the old equipment and the old flow, but bring it back into uh, with new equipment and with a, a, a lean flow, proper flow of the work through the area with the, with the employees engaged. You know, we're doing it significantly different than it was done before. Because if you, if you have the same cost disadvantages and you don't do something to improve your other factors, then, then you're, you're just going to lose it again. It's not going to stay. Mm -hmm. So we've had this uh, skilling up the workforce challenge for years. I was working in business television back in the early 2000s. We were talking about this issue. How do we fix it, Harry? How do we get people in North America, um, parents of, of kids, to tell them that apprenticing and trades and, and things like that. These are good jobs and they're interesting jobs. How do we sell that? I think the problem starts with the government, government and media in the U.S. Uh, you're, you're in Canada. I don't know if you see the same thing, but in the U.S., I'm sure somewhere every day I can find an article that says university education still pays off with a million dollars more lifetime income than a high school degree. Okay. And so uh, which is statistically true, but very misleading because it doesn't discuss the, that there's something else in there, such as an apprenticeship, which is a valid alternative. So about, about eight years ago, the U.S. Department of Labor called me down to Washington 
to tell them how to get the workforce ready for reshoring, for the surge in jobs that, that was coming back and has come back. And so we're in the Secretary of Labor's conference room in Washington. And I said, I stood up and said, well, uh, first we have to get the Department of Labor to stop being part of the problem and become part of the solution. And fortunately, they didn't kick me out. And they said, okay, what do you have? And I said, well, I pulled up one of their websites and it said, education pays off with more income, something like that. You know? And I said, huh, I thought you were the Department of Labor responsible for training, responsible for having the workforce that we need. Why doesn't this say uh, education and training pay off? And down here where you've got these bars that show in income by degree level, high school, uh, community college, college, why doesn't it say apprenticeship and show that the apprenticeship income is just as good as the university income and show that there's an alternative and then get that out to the media. And they folded like this and they changed it. And I, I ran into uh, like a, a sec assistant secretary that hadn't been there uh, uh, two weeks later at some other event. He said, Harry, I heard all about your meeting. <laughs> you know, so, so it really made an impact. And so I've, I'm on a, a committee, the investment advisory committee of the Department of Commerce and I volunteered and we may do it to, to go through all, all the government websites and look for misleading information like that. And not that their information is wrong, but that it only tells half the story. And if you only tell half the story, then the half that you need to get out that people doesn't get out there because media and politicians go to those sites and think that's the total truth kind of thing. Right? So things like that, get the, get the full picture out there. I, I, did a, I did a study I had data on income by, de by degree type and, and age and, and for apprentice, people who passed an apprenticeship. And, and I did a calculation showed that a 49 year old apprentice should have a million dollars higher net worth than a 49 year old English major in the United States. Did, nobody passes that or not. I gave it to them. Nobody passes it around, you know, because the, the university uh, establishment is so strong in obtaining students because they need them to fill their universities. Mm -hmm. yeah. and another thing that relates to reshoring, one reason uh, people, uh, young, young, good, smart youth that do not come into manufacturing is that they've been told for the last 20, 30 years, all the work's going to China, to India, to Mexico, to somewhere else. So why would you want to take a four-year apprenticeship if at the end of that, there aren't going to be any jobs for that category, right? especially compared to going to university and drinking and partying and having a good time? Yeah? So, so, uh, so we believe that the smart thing, say, for uh, uh, Ontario you know, or, or, or a state in the U.S. to do would be to collect all their cases of reshoring report them every week or every month on the TV, radio, newspaper about all the jobs coming back so that the students, the, high, the guidance counselor would say, wow, once again, manufacturing careers are great. Susie, become a welder, great idea, it's wonderful. Right? So there's, there's things like that that can be done, but it, it takes communication because the barrier is recruitment. The barrier is getting smart kids to say, yeah, that's a good career, I wanna do that. Well, and it doesn't, it doesn't start in late high school either, does it, Harry? It starts in public school. It starts with the parents talking to their kids and saying, you do things with your hands. If that's what you want to do, it's not a bad career, right? I mean, 
It's a wonderful career. Yeah. Yeah. Like tell kids really at early, early age that you don't have to sit there and, and scrabble through books for the rest of your life. You <laughs> might be actually doing something creative with your hands. Yeah, and that's and I, where the creative skill comes in, right? Yeah. Actually, over in Switzerland, I, I've taken four different tours of apprentices or shop owners to Switzerland to see the apprenticeship system there. And we go to shop after shop where they have very smart apprentices. Kids, you, if you, in the United States, you would have said for sure they were university students, except for the fact that they spoke three languages and the US students wouldn't. And, the, and, and you talk to the management and ownership of the company. These are 100 man, 500 man companies. And typically the senior management are ex-apprentices who worked their way up, maybe went out and got a university degree, but they know the product, they know the process, they know the customer, they know the employees. They're perfectly attuned to run the company. Whereas as opposed to a, an MBA parachuting in that knows nothing about anything except for some things that they learned in school and, and applying. And I'm an MBA, you know, there, there's value there. I'm not saying it's bad, but it isn't the whole solution. Whereas starting at the bottom, working your way up and getting maybe an MBA, that, that's a perfect solution. That sounds like you, Kevin Snook. <laughs> well, it, it, it does. And, and the other thing that's interesting is I'm on the other side of the world, right? So I'm based in Asia and I've been here through that rise of factory Asia. So I came over here in 96 when China was just starting to really ramp up. And, and since then, it's been China and Southeast Asia and India and, and things have all been on that upward curve. And a lot of that was offshoring from places like uh, the US and, and Europe. And uh, so I've seen it from the other side as well. And what I, I love about what you're saying, Harry, is that um, in, in order to bring things back, you can't bring them back into the situation that it was before. That's just fundamentally wrong. Um, people look at, at China and Southeast Asia and India as being low cost manufacturing because it's low wage rates. But, you know, from, from my perspective, having seen what's happened here over the last 25 years, it's incredibly high technology manufacturing with incredibly smart people. And so in order to be able to move that back, um, we're going to have to have incredibly smart people with great automation and, and like you said, hiring the best graduates or the best people from school, whatever it is, and attracting them back into manufacturing. And so it's a different solution. It's not just about pulling things back, like you said, into the old factory. So I'm, I'm fully aligned with you there. And the, the part that I've always been frustrated with in manufacturing is that it's kind of it's denigrated in some, some ways. People talk about manufacturing as being kind of this dirty, noisy, sort of smelly industry. And uh, that's not the way manufacturing is anymore. You know, uh, my 30 years in manufacturing have been fantastic in, in wonderful factories that are producing really high quality goods with very high quality people. And I'd love to see that message get out there more. You know, I've, I've got an interesting story. Uh, on one of the tours that I took to Switzerland, went to one of the big international machine tool companies headquartered there. We were getting demonstrations and the manager there said that when they uh, develop a, the making of a new part, they do the programming for some complex part and they do it for the United States. They break it down into two steps, put it on two different machines because the programming is too complicated for the typical U.S. technician. 
Whereas when they do it for Switzerland or Germany, they do it in one step because the technicians are able to handle it. Therefore, the cost is lower in Germany and Switzerland because it's done without the touch and the setup and everything else. So, so the, you know, we need smarter kids, we need better training. And if we do that, we have a chance. But if we don't do that, for example, the Chinese are improving their productivity rate by about 6% per year. For the last 12 years, the U.S. has averaged 0.4% per year. Now, fortunately, the Chinese wages have gone up at 15% per year, so their labor cost per unit of output has gone up faster than ours has. But in the long run, uh, you can't win if they're improving at 6% and you're only improving at 0.4%. So we need, need to automate much more, which means our factories have to be busy to justify it. And then we need kids, students, workers who are smart enough and trained well enough to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So Harry, I have to ask you, and, and Kevin, I'll ask you this too. I'll put it to both of you, but was really offshoring, was it ever a good idea? Um, uh, from a company viewpoint, back when the Chinese wages were like pennies an hour, 25 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour, instead of $4 an hour now, uh, it, it was clearly a, a huge savings for them, especially short-term savings, especially measured unit costs, manufacturing costs, cost of goods sold savings. Um, and, and probably was if, probably if I'd been there, then I'd have done it because you had to do it because everybody did it. You, you're going out of business if you didn't. Um, so in, in some categories, it was right. Other categories, it was wrong. Uh, I, I, I work with a, a professor, John Gray, at, at The Ohio State University, and he, is, he did, found four Midwestern or four Western and Midwestern companies that had offshored and then reshored, and he interviewed them, went to their, went to their factories. Why did, why did you offshore? Wages were so low, uh, FOB price was so low, couldn't afford not to. Why did you, why did you reshore? We found that uh, there were so many uh, logistical costs, risks, delays, quality issues, et cetera, that those things offset those savings that we went over for in the first place. So, so companies probably made the right decision at first, but as the cost differential has shrunk, that it may now make sense for a significant portion to come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from my perspective, John, it's, it's all situational. You have to look at that particular situation at the time. And um, I think it, it's all about the consumer. And if the consumer benefits and it's a competitive world, then it's good that we have open trade channels across and that we're, that we're looking at what's the best solution for the, for the consumer or the customer. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's times when that will be offshoring. And, and even now, I think there's times when uh, offshoring solutions give a benefit to the American consumer or to the European consumer. I think there's other times when it's an absolute mistake and whenever people are following the crowd because they think it's the thing to do, it's normally the wrong thing to be doing. And so having the right cost models, the right, and not, not looking at the short-term cost of a piece, but the long-term cost of doing business overseas, um, that's completely different. And when you think about, uh, I, I was talking to a, a CEO of a company or COO of a company in, uh, in England the other day who's been reshoring um, a lot of, uh, of their toy uh, manufacturing production. They, uh, they've been moving it back because over that longer period of time, the cost of sending 
uh, quality controllers and, and company directors and purchasing managers and everything like that over there, it's just become prohibitive. And then all of a sudden, as Harry alluded to before, COVID hits, you can't send your directors over there anymore. Uh, you know, that whole dynamic changes again. So I would say it's very much situational, but you've got to look at it on a much, um, a much wider perspective than the cost of a good. Mm -hmm. One thing I'd, I'd add to that, Kevin, the, I've run into companies here that 10 or 20 years ago sent their work off to, let's say, China to be made. And, and since then, the product has changed, the material has changed, the process to make it, maybe the design changed a little bit. And now they're thinking about bringing it back and they don't know how to make it. Mm -hmm. they, they don't have the process plan. They don't have the, the, the prints. They, you know, so if they bring it back, they have to bring it back Re reverse engineer their own product to find out how to make it so they or, or they can have some out, outsider make it for them here in the United States. So that's a very dangerous position to have your intellectual property owned by somebody, used by somebody else, controlled by somebody else who anytime they want to could decide to become your competitor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, Kevin, that you said you have to think right down to the consumer and what is going to be best for the consumer. And I, I'll throw this out to you, Harry, but did one of the problems become that companies were not so much focused on the consumer, but the shareholder and delivering to the shareholder what they needed? I, I'd say a combination. Certainly, okay. they, the consumer demanded the lowest price for example, Walmart, and, and to, to get that lowest price, they went offshore and maybe they went more, little more than they should have for the stake, the shareholder. But the, I'd say the consumer was the original driver. The, I think the interesting development in the last year, in August of 2019, the business roundtable announced a new statement of the purpose of a corporation. So the business roundtable has the top CEOs in, in the country and 181 of them led by Jamie Dimon. So big, big time signed a statement that said no longer is the, is the stakeholder, just the shareholder, but also community suppliers and employees. Yeah. Hmm. And so we have on our website, we have that list of all those companies and, and the headline says, okay, walk the talk. So yeah. if you really believe what you said, if you signed it, and so when, when companies are selling and they go to divisions of those companies, I suggest to them, show them what the CEO signed and say, well, the best way to implement what the CEO signed is to reshore some of that production and bring it back and give me an order. <laughs> That's Harry Moser. He's the founder and president of the reshoring initiative in the U.S. Next week on Make It Right, Harry, Manufacturing Leadership Advisor Kevin Snook and I will continue our conversation discussing how reshoring, nearshoring, and leanshoring all work together, as well as the impact of reshoring on the United States, Mexico, and Canada agreement, and how reshoring around the world will affect manufacturing globally. I hope you'll join us then. I'm Janet Eastman. Thanks very much for listening to the Make It Right podcast.